0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett.
1: Welcome to the program, and if you were depending on terrestrial radio, and by that I mean KDVS, to pick up this program last week, you no doubt discovered that instead of us you got planetary radio which we thoroughly approve of it's a fine program and if we need to alternate with a program from time to time we are proud to have it be that one we alternate with
2: is planetary radio
1: terrestrial radio too well you bring up a good point in, in a way uh, yes it is it is on terrestrial radio because after all the planet that we're on would be a subset of planetary radio wouldn't it kind of like the problems people have when they're trying to describe, uh, you know, what's going on on other planets, and they can't use the word, well, geography, because geo means Earth. But um, that's not an issue that we're sticklers on here at Radio Parallax. Now, listening to some of our recent programs, I was sort of disappointed to, to find that I, I didn't sound like, to my own mind, I didn't sound like my usual peppy self. And I think the reason for this, no doubt, is the slew of bad news that that is out there floating around that uh, is hard to avoid, that is hard to avoid if you want to talk about current events. And we'll do a little bit of that today. But I think an effort to, uh, to keep things on the peppy side, we'll, uh, we'll go to the archives. We have a lot of material in there that we never got to, or we got to a long time ago and is probably worth hearing from again. By our archives, I mean the printed material that has been set aside archivally for use on this program, not our archived radio programs, which of course are freely available to you at radioparallax.com. We passed a thousand shows quite a while back, and um, I'm pretty sure we won't make two thousand, but let's let's try to be optimistic. Uh, case in point, something from the archival files that is worth going over again, because I think we did it many years back, was a wonderful quote. I love this one. It comes from the author Thomas L. Mason, and his quote is, be yourself is about the worst advice you can give to some people. Anyway, while stumbling around the files, I came across uh, a collection of quotes that we have uh, looked at in the past, and I think a lot of these are worth hearing from again. For example, someone noted that the distinguished British playwright and noted wit Oscar Wilde once made the following sage observation. Some cause happiness wherever they go. Others, whenever they go. And here's a couple from Jimmy Fallon, or at least Jimmy Fallon's writers, and this is several years old at this point, but at at that time, Jimmy Fallon noted that Disney will lose $200 million on its new movie, John Carter, about a Civil War soldier on Mars. Disney could tell they were going to lose lots of money when they realized they made a movie about a Civil War soldier on Mars To which he added, The Hunger Games is expected to make $130 million at the box office this weekend. Experts say the movie has one quality you look for in a film. It's not about a Civil War soldier on Mars. Since we're quoting Jimmy Fallon, something we don't do very often, let's do it again. A few years back, Fallon noted that a man in Oregon said his snow globes started a fire after he left them in the sun for too long. Fortunately, his wife wasn't injured because she left him when he started collecting snow globes. Here's a couple from Conan O'Brien. The media are reporting that American universities are being infiltrated by foreign spies. They say everyone should be on the lookout for any student who is paying attention and taking notes. Also from Conan, a man is filing a lawsuit against Kim Kardashian and Kanye West claiming they have ties to al-Qaeda. When al-Qaeda heard about this, they said, please do not lump us in with those people. And for the Conan hat trick, we have this. After I made a joke about Newark, New Jersey last week, the mayor banned me from flying into Newark Airport. Now I'll have to get there the same way everyone else does, through a series of poor choices. And finally, from David Letterman, a few years back, Dave said at this point, happy birthday to Jay Leno, who turns 62. If you'd like to get Jay a gift, you can't go wrong with giving him someone else's show. Here's what I know that is one of Mr. McVillan's favorites, which is that it's not about how many times you fall. It's about how many times you get back up. Of course, he was informed by the officer of the scene that, yeah, but that's not how field sobriety tests work.
0: Bad boys, whatcha gonna do? What you gonna do when they come for you? Bad boys, bad boys, whatcha gonna do?
1: Now back in the nineties, yours truly uh, used to subscribe to Harper's magazine, if for no other reason that every week it came with the Harper's Index, which was a fascinating array of statistical and polling data. A lot of these items still struck me, so I think I will share them with you, dear listener. From the April ninety-nine issue of the magazine, we had the following. Estimated portion of the $4.8 billion that the IMF loaned Russia last July that has been lost or stolen. That would be one part in five. And writing at this time, they cited the number of months after the Civil War ended that slaves in Texas were finally told about their emancipation. That would be two months. To which they tacked on number of years that Texas has observed a Juneteenth state holiday to commemorate the day that the slaves were told, and that was 19 years at that point. Of course, now it's a federal holiday. Well, we've noted on the show before that uh, those freedom-loving Texans were <laughs> awfully reluctant to give up their slaves. That's, that's why they died at the Alamo. They brought their slaves with them, and the Michigan government said, no, we've, we've banned this practice. But I digress. But speaking of the Civil War and its aftermath, the June 1998 index had the following year in which the Tennessee legislature approved the 15th Amendment granting blacks the right to vote. Well, that was in, that was in 1997. Here's one from November of 2001. Percentage of Americans who believe that the theory of human evolution is, quote, probably, unquote, or, quote, definitely, unquote, not true. 47% to which we should tack on percentage of Americans who believe the tenets of astrology probably or definitely have some scientific truth that would be 48%. Here's one from December 1998 before he became America's mayor about Rudy, Rudy Giuliani. Number of times since 1994, only 4 years earlier, that the ACLU has sued New York Mayor Rudolph Giuliani and the answer to that was 17 times. Here's one from December 2000 that completely uh, went past us. Chances that an Alabama voter voted against legalizing marriage between blacks and whites last November, which was two and five. Yes, that would, that would have made it the Bush versus Gore November 2000 election. And even at that time, 24 years ago, 40% of people in Alabama didn't think that was a good idea. This makes us want to slightly alter Will Durst's famous line, which we will modify into, oh yeah, Alabama. Yeah, that's where people will say things like, hey, look at him. He's wearing shoes. Here's one from January of 2000, which is disturbing because we know that it's only, only so much worse since then. In January of 2000, Harper's Index cited the number of companies that controlled over half of all U.S. media outlets in 1983, which was 50 which they added, number that controlled over half of all US media outlets last year, making it nineteen ninety-nine, which would be a grand total of six. Our guess is the number probably at this point is still six or maybe five. Here's an eye opener from April of twenty eleven. Amount of federal money that went to the Amount of federal money that went to National Public Radio in 2010, 2.7 million dollars. Amount of federal money that went to Jerry Falwell's Liberty University, that would be $446 million. From April of 05, we have this one. Monthly cost of the U.S. occupation of Iraq. Monthly cost. They cited $4.1 billion. Of course, when the war was hot, they were spending that amount about every, I don't know, 10 days. And finally, from May 2010, we have this apropos to today's headlines, estimated number of categories of products that are currently available for sale in the Gaza Strip, 4,000, compared to number of those that are legally imported into Gaza, which is 73. Yeah, those poor folks in Gaza have been squeezed for some time now. Well, we started out in a bit of a joking manner today, but I think at this point I need to sort of stop, pause, and take us on a slightly somber turn because it's our duty to report to you that former Radio Parallax guest (laughs) and prominent national public radio broadcaster Bob Edwards passed away last week. For many years he was the voice of Morning Edition on NPR and he certainly was widely respected by his colleagues as a real professional who knew how to add a certain something to his broadcasts. Anyway, it was our great privilege to have had Mr. Edwards on this program. It was something like our 100th show, which was a good while ago. Edwards had written a terrific book about another legend of broadcasting, Edward R. Murrow. And we're happy to report that you can hear that discussion in its entirety by going to our website, radioparallax.com. Just type in Bob Edwards, it'll take you right there. I think we should, what we should do, Mr. Miller, at this point is, is air an excerpt, maybe four or five minutes worth of that broadcast. In our chat, Bob Edwards advised us that Ed Murrow had been in Germany, seeing what was going on, and it turns out helping smuggle out various authors from the country before he got involved with CBS. So I jumped in about that point.
0: Now you talk in the book about the time before he went to work for CBS, he did a lot of work getting scholars out of Nazi Germany.
2: Yeah, he worked for the, the education arm of the Carnegie Endowment, the Institute of International Education. And the appeal was made to the institute to um, help out all these uh, first German and then other European countries as they were uh, taken over by the Nazis. first thing the Nazis did was burn books. They went into libraries. I mean, thought and, and education were an enemy. And these scholars had nowhere to go. They, were, they couldn't function anymore in, in uh, Nazi Germany and, or in the other countries under Nazi influence. So uh, the appeal was made to the to the institute, and a committee was formed. And Murrow really ran it; he was the deputy, but you know, in any organization, deputies run it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it was Merle who brought to America Herbert Marcuse, Hans Morgenthau, uh, Paul Tillich, uh, Martin Buber, Thomas Mann—you know, real slackers all—and <laughs> their influence on American culture, the arts, academia, uh, science, religion, just fought for lasted for decades and and it's it continues when you think the proteges of those men are are still on american campuses today sure i mean if he had done nothing nothing else in his life that that's worthy of a book the records are all at the uh, new york public library and a lot of them were only made public um fairly recently long after murrow's death so the details are just coming out on that contribution that he made um, before he ever got into journalism or hooked up with CBS.
0: So Murrow certainly had uh, an, an anti-Nazi uh, attitude coming in, having seen what they were up to before the rest of America, yet he was facing a bit of a dilemma having to be, quote, balanced, unquote, as he was covering what was going on in <laughs> Europe.
2: Well, I don't think, you know, anyone required two sides on, on Hitler.
0: <laughs> well, he didn't think so, did
2: he? No, and, and others, too. I mean, Richard C. Hattelet had been a, uh, a prisoner of the Gestapo. Um, back when he worked um, for United Press, before the United States got in. There was no love lost there. Uh, William L. Shiro, of course, was many years in Berlin and smuggled out uh, his diary at the uh, bottom of a crate filled with um, CBS scripts. So the Nazis thought it was just the scripts. At the bottom he had his diary, which became a fabulous bestseller, um, Berlin Diary. At the time, it was probably the um, biggest-selling nonfiction book, and uh, followed that up later when he finished up at, at CBS with um, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. Which, basically. by
0: the way, your book has inspired me to pull off my shelf <laughs> and, to, and to commence reading.
2: It's a monster book, but it's it's the Bible as yeah. far as um, that, that era goes.
0: Well, you talk of Richard C. Hodlett. He's still alive. He's still active, writes for the Christian Science Monitor. Daniel Shore, hired by Murrow in 1953, is still uh, working for NPR. Could you comment on uh, these men's work and their, um, and their longevity?
2: Yeah, isn't that great? I'm going to meet Dick Hodlett in person uh, in a couple of weeks when I get to New England. Um, and he was very helpful. He read, read the manuscript, and so did Dan Shore, and made suggestions, corrections, and the like. And uh, Marvin Kalb claims to be the last guy that Murrow hired. And Marvin gave me some uh, interesting little things about the personal Murrow. He said that when Murrow would would come into a room, enter a restaurant or whatever, everybody stopped and turned and looked at him. Hmm. There was just some kind of um, charisma, you you know. They just wondered, who is this guy? even before they recognized him as the fellow on their television set.
0: There's something about him.
2: Yeah, just an aura. And, and uh, Marvin said that, that Merle never noticed this. He was always looking at the ground.
1: Very pleased to note that the two of the men mentioned by Edwards, Daniel Shore and Richard C. Hodlett, later became Radio Parallax guests. In fact, we had Dan Shore on Show 102 following Bob Edwards. We reached out to... Daniel Shore, who at that time was sort of the senior, I forget what, he had some beautiful title, like Senior News Analyst, I, I think it was, at NPR. And he was very nice and, and came on and spoke with us. And uh, we can't recommend highly enough that you check out both those men on that show from so long ago. And, if, and we hope that whets your appetite to hear Richard C. Hodlett uh, as well, because he was excellent. Yours truly got mixed up with some people at NPR couple decades back and profited from that experience. One NPR person that I met uh, knew how to get a hold of Hodlet, who was still writing for the Christian Science Monitor, and uh, by God, and and facilitated our reaching out and getting him as a guest. Anyway, I'm very grateful for that and can't get too mad at this guy who, in fact, turned out to be something of a weasel otherwise. You know, since we're mentioning uh, Daniel Shore, (laughs) I uh, have in my hand a copy of his commentaries, a collection of his commentaries for NPR. The title of the book was Come to Think of It. After Shore passed away at age 93 back in 2010, uh, CBS News correspondent Bob Schaefer said he had a great way of irritating government officials because he always came up with the truth. And I can't resist excerpting from his column written on September 30th in 2001 said Daniel Shore. He's our Winston Churchill, writes Jonathan Alter in the current Newsweek, walking the rubble, calling, inspiring his heartbroken but defiant people. But, said Daniel Shore, by the time the article appeared, he'd gone back to being Rudy Giuliani, playing political games and making himself the center of a spirited controversy. Giuliani had emerged as possibly the most popular figure in a terrorism crisis. He played host at Ground Zero to national and international figures, starting with President Bush. He floated on an unbelievable wave of popularity. By refusing to talk politics, he came to transcend politics. But it didn't last. Barred by the New York term limit law from seeking a third term as mayor, Giuliani succumbed to the temptation to cash in on his popularity by offering to stay on another few months. Otherwise, he said he might feel obliged to ask the legislature to change the law and permit him to run for a third term, said Daniel Shore. In that one political move, he expended a good deal of his popularity. So I was struck by the fact that a couple decades ago, Dan Shore was on to Rudy Giuliani's, shall we say, reluctance to leave office, whether that was for himself or the man he was lawyering for, Donald J. Trump. A few weeks back on this program, we mentioned that excellent CNN documentary on Rudy Giuliani showing how it was he he took part basically in a riot in New York, egging on the cops in the town to challenge uh, Mayor Dinkins on some restrictions he wanted to place on the police force, which made it sort of understandable that on January 6th, uh, 2021, Rudy was the guy out in the ellipse saying, well, what we need at this point is trial by combat. Well, I'm flirting with the idea of coming forward at this point to present time and talking about some current events, but looking at the Week magazine right now and the following headlines, Ukraine aid bill hits GOP roadblock in House, causing me to go, ouch, followed by Israel readies attack on Hamas in Rafah, which is double ouch. Then we have House impeaches Homeland Security Secretary over border. Yeah, that's clearly the most important issue that's going on right now. And meanwhile, over in Russia, Alex Navalny mysteriously and suddenly died while in the custody of the Russian prison system. At some point in the future, we're going to have to outline the trail of bodies that is behind uh, one of the world's leading murderers, at least chief of state murderers. Well, at least chief of state murderers who orders, seems to order the murders directly. Because man, there's, there's a lot of corpses strewn about in the the pathway of uh, Vladimir Putin. Now, I know that there are some of you out there that are skeptical over the fact that Navalny met a bad end at the hand of Vladimir Putin. And while it's true, we don't have any proof that he died of natural causes, say from slipping on a banana peel. But uh, how you could miss the obvious signs that his goose was cooked uh, is kind of beyond us. And of course, It does raise this greater question of why did Navalny go back to Russia when he must have known this was going to happen? He only survived the first poisoning attempt on his life because the plane put down in Germany. Germany was well-equipped to deal with the poison that had been given to Navalny on the flight. We're probably going to ask our favorite toxicologist, uh, Howard McKinney, to come back on this show and talk a little bit about uh, the art of poisoning. Poisoning which I'm sure he knows a great deal about. There's a pretty good documentary on Navalny floating around. Of course, it's now somewhat moot in some respects, at least in terms of Navalny leading a political movement. But although I can't remember the name of it, I would suggest to your listener that you you, you search around and and watch the thing because, well, you learn a lot. I believe it's called Navalny. Okay. I know there's a certain subset of people out there that really, really are suspicious of Western intelligence and how it manipulates uh, information, which, is, which they certainly do. But uh, the idea out there among certain people and certain groups is that this is all nonsense. Russia did not collude with elements of the Trump campaign to get him elected in 2016, despite, of course, the numerous indictments and convictions that, that took place in the wake of those events. And there are people that feel that, you know, we, the West, Western intelligence agencies, Uh, Are to blame for the war in Ukraine, which I'll admit is a complicated affair. But when it's all said and done, I think we have to place most of the blame for making war in Ukraine on Russia. And no, it's not because they're in there to root out Nazis. By the way, to our regular listener that commented recently, Navalny had been seen giving speeches in the company of certain fascists. I, I would just have to add, do do more homework, son. Anyway, there's a lot that can be and should be said about uh, about Putin and what's going on in Europe. And uh, today is not the day we're going to do that, except for the few remarks I'm throwing out now. We must try to do it more properly in the future. And for the immediate present, what I'd like to do is jump ship from Europe to um, Silicon Valley. There's an excellent article. In the Atlantic by Adrian LaFrance, which I think I need to quote from extensively. And that is because Ms. LaFrance seems to think much like we do on this program, which we think means she's pretty on the ball. In the section Dispatches in the Atlantic, the article was titled The Despots of Silicon Valley. The subheadline was The Tech World Has Its Own Ascendant Political Ideology, and it's pastime we call it what it is. The article opens, if you had to capture Silicon Valley's dominant ideology in a single anecdote, you might look first to Mark Zuckerberg, sitting in the blue glow of his computer some 20 years ago, chatting with a friend about how his new website, The Facebook, had given him access to reams of personal information about his fellow students. Zuckerberg, yeah, so if you ever need info about anybody at Harvard, just ask. I have over 4,000 emails, pictures, addresses, friend. What? How'd you manage that one, Zuckerberg? People just submitted it. I don't know why. They trust me, to which he adds, dumb Fs, said Adrian LaFrance. That conversation, later revealed through leaked chat records, was soon followed by another that was just as telling, if better mannered. At a now-famous Christmas party in 2007, Zuckerberg first met Sheryl Sandberg, his eventual chief operating officer, who, with Zuckerberg, would transform the platform into a digital imperialistic superpower. He explained to Sandberg that he wanted every American with an internet connection to have a Facebook account. For Sandberg, who once told a colleague that she'd been put on this planet to scale organizations, that turned out to be the perfect mission. Facebook, now Meta, has become an avatar of all that is wrong with Silicon Valley. Its self interested role in spreading global disinformation is an ongoing crisis. Recall, too, the company's secret mood manipulation experiment in 2010, which deliberately tinkered with what users saw in their news feeds in order to measure how Facebook could influence people's emotional states without their knowledge. Or its participation in inciting genocide in Myanmar in 2017. Or it's use as a clubhouse for planning and executing the January 6th, 2021 insurrection. In Facebook's early days, it's noted, Zuckerberg listed revolutions among his interests. That was about the time he had business cards printed with, I'm CEO, bitch. A few paragraphs later, LaFrance notes, YouTube, owned by Google, Instagram, owned by Meta, and Twitter, which Elon Musk insists on calling X, have been as damaging to individual rights civil society, and global democracy as Facebook was and is. Considering the way that generative AI is now being developed throughout Silicon Valley, we should brace for that damage to be multiplied many times in the years ahead. Notes the author, The behavior of these companies and the people who run them is often hypocritical, greedy, and status-obsessed. But underlying these venalities is something more dangerous, a clear and coherent ideology that is seldom called out for what it is. Authoritarian technocracy. As the most powerful companies in Silicon Valley have matured, this ideology has only grown stronger, more self righteous, more delusional, and in the face of rising criticism, more aggrieved. The new technocrats are ostentatious in their use of language that appeals to enlightenment values, reason, progress, freedom. But in fact, they're leading an anti democratic, illiberal movement. Many of them profess unconditional support for free speech but are vindictive toward those who say things that do not flatter them. They tend to hold eccentric beliefs. The technological process of any kind is unreservedly and inherently good and that you should always build it simply because you can. That frictionless information flow is the highest value regardless of the information's quality. That privacy is an archaic concept that we should welcome the day when machine intelligence surpasses our own, and above all, that their power should be unconstrained. The author goes on to note that even the most deleterious companies have built some wonderful tools, but these tools, at scale, are also systems of manipulation and control. They promise community, but sow division. They claim to champion truth, but spread lies. They wrap themselves in concepts such as empowerment and liberty, but surveil us relentlessly. The values that win out tend to be the ones that rob us of agency and keep us addicted to our feeds. Anyway, I cannot recommend this article highly enough to you, dear listener, but what is scarcely touched upon in the piece is the degree to which the powerful interests of Silicon Valley may ally with certain political interests in this country to promote a more authoritarian way of doing things. We talked on this show, and you've no doubt found in many locations uh, on the internet and elsewhere, about how it was that social media assisted the Trump campaign in 2016 and again in 2020. And if you'll notice, the only politicians out there making any noise about how uh, some changes need to be made with how Silicon Valley conducts this business are the Democrats. The Republicans are as silent on that as they appear to be on uh, Russian expansion, which personally I don't think is a coincidence. Apparently in 2020, Donald Trump's vote share in Silicon Valley was 23%, which is pretty small, but it was higher than the 20% he received in 2016. But you know what? I'm not worried about Trump getting elected through uh, the people that work in Silicon Valley voting for him. I'm worried about what the CEOs of the corporations are going to do to benefit him. And unfortunately, I can't say any more about that because we need to take a break. Boy, do we need to. Let's do that. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.